Please have a seat as we, uh, and as you do so, you might uh, find your Bible. It might look like this. It might look like this. Either open it up or turn it on to uh, the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth is an Old Testament book. It's in the uh, library we call the Bible, and that, that's what it is. It's not a book, it is a library, and it's in the section of the library we call the historical book. So it tells a historical story. It's right there after Judges and uh, right before 1 Samuel. I just had to double check, make sure I was right on that. <laughs> and so open up to Ruth as we continue this uh, series, really all about, for us, how and where you fit in God's church and how Ruth found her place in God's people. And so it's a great story of how to belong to each other. And, and so as you do that, um, just a reminder about the library you have in front of you, that there's no other library like this one on earth, that God really did breathe his life onto these pages. He inspired the words that are written here and the authors as they wrote them, the characters as they lived these stories. And he took uh, thousands of years, a bunch of different books and different categories in our library, and he stitched all of that into one unified story that leads to Jesus Christ. I think the story of Ruth actually puts that on bright display for us in a beautiful way, and uh, we'll see that in, as, it, as that story grows and continues to connect to the story of Jesus over the next few weeks. And uh, it's just amazing what the Holy Spirit has done with this library, but here's the great news. He's doing it with you, too. <laughs> He wants to inspire you and move you and, and, uh, and change how you think, change what you do, and, and transform you into his image and his likeness. And so this morning is a moment where we just want to stop and pause before I say anything else and pray that he would do that for us. And I actually want to do that in a kind of a specific way this morning. Sometimes, a lot of times, we kind of pray for ourselves. Uh, sometimes I ask you to think about the person next to you. I've done that a few times now, so you're familiar. This, this morning, I want you to think about people not here, okay? And not someone who ought to be next to you necessarily, but a neighbor, a, 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 a friend, a coworker, uh, someone you don't even know, the people that you might encounter uh, just walking down the street and, you know, getting the mail this week or something like that. Put those people in your mind and let's pray this prayer together. Almighty God, as you've inspired these words and these characters, we pray that you would inspire our minds to understand, our hearts to know, and you'd make our feet and our hands and all that we do to go. That as we encounter these coworkers, these neighbors, these um, these other friends and family members who aren't here this morning, this week that their lives would be changed by what you're about to do right now in us. Just make us faithful to do your will this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, this summer, um, Jennifer and I celebrated our 10-year anniversary. Um, so that's kind of weird. Every time I say that, it's like, wow, I've been married 10 years. That's... <laughs> That's awesome, you know, but also kind of weird because in my mind, I'm still 20, you know, something years old. So, and you guys are all going, well, he's still 30. Like he's still, what is, what's he complaining about? But anyways, we celebrated 10 years this summer. And uh, on that trip, uh, we, we took a trip uh, to Chicago to celebrate that. That's kind of because it was a little bit of a heritage vacation because not 10, but 12 years ago, that's where I proposed to her. Uh, we were uh, up in, in Illinois visiting her uncle and her aunt under the 
only halfway ruse that I was interested in the chemistry program at the University of Illinois. So I was checking out the school and I proposed to her there and then the next day we went to Chicago, so it was fun. So at 10 years we went back to Chicago and, and you know, I'm, I don't think that I want to live in a place like Chicago, multi-million residents and all that kind of stuff and, and, and so many different people coming in and visiting everything. But I love to visit big cities. I, I don't know what it is. I, I, if I can choose one place, I go to the mountains, okay? But if I like a close second or third is like a big city. There's just something about it. There's an energy about it. There's all the people and, and all the ways that their stories intertwine and mix and mingle. And even with mine as a visitor, and, and I also kind of like architecture. I'm not trained or studied in it at all, but I can look at a beautiful building like the one we're in right now and appreciate it. And Chicago's, there's really no better place to go if you want to appreciate architecture. So, so I really enjoy that kind of thing. But I, I, I look back at Chicago and the reason I, I don't think I could live there is because I think it would be so hard to find a sense of belonging in the midst of millions of people, right? Or maybe you visited Houston. I'm guessing probably pretty much most of us have been to Houston or Austin or maybe New York or LA or something, some other town besides Chicago. And, and, and you kind of get what I'm saying. There's so many people, there's so many stories, there's so many things going on. How can you find a sense of belonging? And, and maybe you've never visited any of those places, but you can kind of understand where I'm coming from. But, but I also have to tell you, it's, it's not very unlike that here in Cameron either. As a person who's lived here a year and a half, it can be kind of tough to find your place of belonging. And I know the saying goes, you know, when you live in a small town, you know everyone and everyone knows you kind of thing. And it's true that some of you are, have exponentially more connections, you know, I'm it's like I'm thinking about some of you in the room, than, than I could ever have in this town. But you still don't have 5,000, 6,000 connections. You don't have the capacity to know everyone literally in this town. And it's still hard to, to find your place of belonging, even in a town like Cameron. But our hearts long for belonging. Our hearts long for a place to rest and to be. And if it's not your school, if it's not your town, it might be your addiction, it might be your, uh, it might be your temptation, it might be your work, it might be uh, where you shop, it might be what you do, it might be Facebook, it might be Twitter. You will, your soul is longing for a place to belong and it will find it. And it's either gonna be a healthy place or a not so healthy place. And that's why it's so important to know what it means to belong in the first place and what it might mean to belong to this community here at First Methodist Church and, and to Christ's community as a part of his kingdom and his son and his daughter. And uh, so I'm excited to continue this series this morning through Ruth. Last week we met Ruth, uh, our hero in this story, uh, our namesake of the story, Ruth. Ruth is the uh, daughter-in-law of Naomi. And now Naomi was from Bethlehem. She traveled with her husband and sons to a foreign land, Moab, and there her husband died and her sons got married, but then they died. And so that left Naomi and her daughters-in-law in a foreign land, Moab, and her daughters-in-law were from Moab because that's where they were when they got married and when they met their sons. And, and so this was a situation of devastation without any patriarch or male to connect them to the social, economic, and political structures of their time. They were absolutely devastated and Naomi's only choice was to go home and so naturally she said, if I'm gonna do it, you should do it too. And she tells her daughters-in-law to go home, back to, their, back to their land, back to where they belong. And uh, infamously, Orpah is convinced and goes home. That's one of her daughters-in-law. But the other daughter-in-law, Ruth, says no. <laughs> I'm going to go where you go. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. 
where you die, I'm going to die. Where you're buried, I'm going to be buried. You, you know that. That's Ruth chapter 1. We went through that last week. And out of this devastating situation, we see this great determination of Ruth. And really this choice and this love that she has for Naomi and this blooming love she has for Naomi's God as well. We'll see how that continues to expand in the story today and over the next couple of weeks. So as we turn the page into the next chapter, we meet another main character in Ruth chapter 2, and his name is Boaz. Boaz. Boaz owns a field. He's rich and influential in his area of Bethlehem, and, uh, and so uh, Ruth and Naomi are living life, and now remember the context here that Ruth now is a foreigner without a husband or a father or any connection to her society. She's a foreigner in a foreign land. This is still a very high-risk, devastating situation for her. There's very few options she has, but one option that she does have is to go and to glean the fields of, of, the, of the area of the people who own fields. Happens that Boaz owned a field, and, uh, and so Ruth tells Naomi, I'm going to go out and I'm going to try to pick some stuff off of the field's that are, that are left over. And now here's a contextual thing that we need to understand about this story, that it was according to God's law that when you owned a field and you harvested the field, you left the edges and the corners to, to let other people less fortunate than you, like people experiencing life-devastating situations like foreigners that don't have husbands or fathers, to come along and to uh, pick or glean themselves. And then when you drop stuff, you leave it there, and that way they can come and pick it up. This is in Leviticus 19. You can read about that. Interestingly, Leviticus 19 is also where Jesus quotes, um, quotes the Old Testament saying to love your neighbor. It all kind of works and flows together, doesn't it? Um, but that's the law. So the law is when you harvest your field, leave the edges. But remember the other contextual thing we said last week, that Ruth takes place in the time of the judges. And the time of the judges was this lawless period in Israel's history. The Hebrew people weren't interested in following the laws. And the average Hebrew person in the time of the judges wouldn't even think about leaving anything for a foreigner or a widow, or a poor person, they would take 100% for themselves. They didn't care what God was saying. They took it all. They did what they wanted that was right in their own sight. That's the refrain of Judges. And so already before we actually meet Boaz, before he says anything, before he really does anything in the story, the story itself is setting up for us that Boaz is this person of exceptional quality and exceptional character that he would be a person in the context of the time of the judges that would allow a foreigner to come and, and to glean the edges and the corners and the, and the drop things in his field, and that he's trained up his foremen and his people, his harvesters, to, to leave those things and not to be overly, um, you know, not, not to collect it all. That would be against the law of the Lord. So Ruth goes out, she's looking for a place to harvest, uh, looking for a place to glean, and then Boaz arrives on the scene in Ruth chapter 2, verse 4. While Ruth was there gleaning from his field, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you, he said. The Lord bless you, the harvesters replied. I don't know, this verse just always, it's just so cheerful to me. I can just imagine showing up at a field and feel the workers, Lord be with you, the Lord bless you, it just seems so happy. You know, it's like he... He obviously treats his people well, and they treat him well, and that's, that's really kind of a beautiful picture. Then Boaz asked his foreman, who is that young woman over there? Who does she belong to? And the, for, the foreman replied, she's the young woman from Moab who came back with Naomi. 
She asked me this morning if she could gather grain behind the harvesters. She's been hard at work ever since, except for a few moments rest in the shelter. Boaz went over and said to Ruth, Listen, my daughter, stay right here with us when you gather grain. Don't go to any other fields. Stay right behind the young women working in my field. See which part of the field they are harvesting, and then follow them. I've warned the young men not to treat you roughly, and when you are thirsty, help yourself to the water they have drawn from the well. Verse 10, Ruth fell at his feet and thanked him warmly. What have I done to deserve such kindness, she asked love that. In this time of the foreigner, in this time of the judges, this foreigner does not expect this measure of grace and mercy upon her. And it's so, so clear that Ruth, too, sees an exceptional quality about Boaz. But what does she see in herself? Well, she says it right there. Why do I deserve such kindness? I'm only a foreigner. And it's so devastating. (laughs) that she sees herself helpless, powerless, undeserving of kindness. And that's how she categorizes herself. Now here in a foreign land, that in a way does make Ruth also exceptional, doesn't it? That she's not like everyone else. She's got a different dialect. She's got, a different, she's got different mannerisms. She might have a slightly different skin color or hair style. And she's kind of like she sticks out. She's exceptional in a way just by the fact of her not being born in Bethlehem, her, her being a foreigner. But Boaz sees through the facade, through the easy-to-see things about her foreignerness, and he sees something else that really makes her exceptional. Verse 11, yes, I know, Boaz replied, but I also know about everything you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. I've heard how you left your father and mother and your own land to live here among complete strangers. Boaz sees it. What we already see as a reader, because we, we got the preview, we got the introduction in the first chapter, we have already saw Ruth live that. So we know as a reader that she's exceptional in that way, that she's choosing to be with Naomi, even despite what it means for her own life. But Boaz now is seeing it and saying it on our behalf. I know you. I've seen what, you're, what you've done. I know that you are a determined person, that you've left your father, your mother, your land, your gods, and you've chosen to come and live among complete strangers and, in parentheses, a God you don't yet know. So verse 12, Boaz's last line here. So may the Lord... The God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge, reward you fully for what you have done. Love that. May the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge, reward you fully for what you have done. What we see in Ruth chapter 2 is a story about exceptional people. It's really the whole story. And I think that connects so well with what it means to be to belong, because too often we might think of belonging more in terms of like fitting in. Um, and one of Jennifer's favorite authors is, has put it this way, that fitting in and, and belonging are actually polar opposites. Fitting in is what you do when you try to change yourself in order to look like everyone else to fit in. Does that make sense? You wear the clothes, you do the hair, you say the things, you, 
you make the same judgments, you spend your money the same way, you do the same kind of work, that's fitting in. But belonging is what happens when you fit in, when, you, when you're a part of a community, not in spite of the things that make you exceptional, but because of what makes you exceptional. Because of your difference, that actually causes the fit to work. Does that make sense? Maybe it's kind of like, like this. Um, will you put up the next, uh, the next picture, Andy? On that trip to Chicago, uh, we visited the Art Institute of Chicago, one of the finest you know, art museums in the world. We didn't do that the first time, so this is kind of a highlight of my trip. And um, This painting that you see in front of you is a painting by uh, George Seurat. Seurat, did I say that right? Anyone a fine art person? Is that right, Jennifer? Seurat. I think it's Seurat. It's spelled like Seurat, but it's Seurat, George Seurat. And he is famous for a, a style of art called pointillism. And I first learned this from my wife, so credit to her, probably because she just read the sign before I got to it. But anyways, <laughs> pointillism. And what pointillism is, is you can see in this picture, he would take dots. You see orange and red and blue and, and dark, you know, black or brown dots. And then you can kind of see there's a distinct there's a distinct line and a break between the darker colors and the green and yellows and things, but all of those are just tiny little, little brush strokes, points. It's called pointillism. And, and here's the deal. What, how pointillism works is that up close, it looks a mess, right? It doesn't make any sense at all. It's orange and blue and red, and it's all these hundreds, thousands, millions, perhaps, of little dots. But as you zoom out, Andy, the next picture, you see that those points, the, the little spot there is, is what makes it exceptional actually becomes something beautiful. It becomes a bigger picture, right? And, and now we see, oh, all those little dots were working together. The, the very thing that that couple inches of painting made it exceptional actually works together with the whole painting to create this dog effect, right? And then you zoom out again, and the picture is actually way bigger than the dog. And you've probably seen this picture somewhere sometime before. This is George Seurat. Uh, something about Paris Lawn, I don't know, I'm sorry. I, I'm, not, I'm not that big of an art person, I appreciate it, but I don't know the names of it. And you see now the dog is just a little part of that, and, and that first clip, those dots were just little parts of that, but it's what makes the, that section of the painting exceptional that actually makes it fit into the bigger picture. Or maybe it's something more like what you do at home, the next picture, Andy, like this puzzle. I'm talking about a Jennifer a lot today. I'm sorry, I should have warned you, but... This puzzle that Jennifer was working on over the break at our house, it's kind of like a puzzle. A puzzle piece is unique, right? There are not any two puzzle pieces alike. Well, disregard the fact that this is like a mass-produced puzzle, you know what I'm saying? Like within the context of a puzzle, there's no two pieces that are exactly alike. That's kind of the definition of a puzzle. But in that one puzzle piece, you stick it on your wall, that's not a very great piece of art. It's nothing really to look at. It doesn't really have any meaning or purpose, but as you put it in its place, in context with the pieces around it, it becomes a beautiful picture. And it's not fitting in that makes the puzzle piece belong, but it's what makes it different and unique. It's its exceptional quality. It's that it's blue and yellow and green and black in just the right spots in order that the whole picture can be seen. Are you picking up what I'm putting down? So to belong is this kind of it's this kind of counterintuitive idea that you don't belong when you fit in, when you look the same, but you belong when you lean into the thing that sets you apart, 
when you lean into what makes you exceptional. And I think the lesson this morning from Ruth and Boaz and the Art Institute of Chicago and, and everything is that if you want to belong, then you've got to choose to be exceptional, not acceptable. Acceptable is what happens when you try to fit in. Exceptional is what happens when you lean into the gifts, the talents, the character, and the nature that God has given you. That's what makes you exceptional. So if you want to belong, you've got to choose to be exceptional, not acceptable. I'll give you an example from myself. I am exceptional because I'm so stinking humble. I'm just the most humble person that, man, y'all are, okay, some of you are laughing. <laughs> Others of you are like, yeah, yeah, right. No, okay, I was supposed to be a joke. I'm bad at jokes, that's why I'm not a comedian. Okay, let me start over. <laughs> Here's my real one. Here's my real one. I'm exceptional because God has made me an incredible learner and, and given me a great interest in many things. I, um, Porterfield's, I don't know if it's part of our nature. <laughs> I think I'm like this because y'all are here, but Porterfield's are infamous for having many hobbies and talents and skills and different things. And it's part of the reason is because God, I think, has blessed us with a desire to learn and, and, the, and equipped us with the ability to learn quickly. So for example, and I was, when I was like kind of teasing Ken earlier about the chair, now I'm going to lift him up as, as a moment this week, but uh, he came and he helped fix the disposal all over at the FLC. And it's like, I mean, I could figure it out. I could look at a YouTube, but isn't it better to like learn from someone? You know what I mean? So he came and, and I just stuck around and he just, it was just like a wrench you stick in there and you shake the thing and, and you know, I watched him do it and now I know how to fix the disposal and I think that's great. And in a beautiful sort of way, I think that makes me exceptional. I think that's a gift that God has given me to, to desire to learn in that way, whether it's a disposal or cutting grass or making coffee or, or preaching or what, like it, it expands to bigger things in my life and smaller things in my life. But God has made me exceptional because he's made me an incredible learner. And it's kind of awkward to say that in front of you. <laughs> Because at first you're like, well, you don't want to brag about what makes you exceptional, right? But actually, isn't, isn't that a beautiful thing? Because what I'm trying to do is not glorify myself, but glorify God for gifting me that talent, that skill. And that's what I want you to do too. That we bristle at that a little bit because talking about ourselves, about what makes us exceptional, might seem like we're glorifying ourselves. But if you start with this foundation that the work I'm trying to do here is actually understand and glorify the gift that God has given me that his name will be glorified through my family through my work through my church it's not selfish it's selfless and I think too few of us really sit down and think long enough what does make me exceptional maybe you're an exceptional cook how do you use that to benefit God's kingdom here on earth maybe you're an exceptional quiet person. <laughs> you don't like to talk to people. Or you don't like to go on trips. How are you using that to benefit God's kingdom here on earth? Maybe you're an exceptional teacher. Maybe, maybe you've noticed that you, you can connect with children or youth or, or elderly people or sick people better than the average person. What is it that makes you exceptional? And what God wants you to do is not ignore that like we too often do, but to lean into that. It's his purpose it's his design, and it's his work that he's put in you and he's doing through you. So if you want to belong, 
We've got to choose to be exceptional, not acceptable. Because who was it? Who was it that was more exceptional than any person? Who was it whose birth was an exception to the rule of nature? <laughs> who was it who, who what, had an exceptional ministry, who just exuded grace and mercy in a way that a teacher, a rabbi, never could have, never did in the past, and never could again? Who was it that died in an exceptional way? And who once again, as if we forgot how miraculous his birth was, rose in an exceptional way. Jesus Christ sets for us the example of what it means to be exceptional and to belong. You remember what God said when he baptized Jesus? This is my beloved. This one is my beloved in whom I am well pleased. And it wasn't because he fit in. It wasn't because he was doing things that made him seem acceptable, but it was because he was the very opposite of that. He was exceptional. I think this might have to be a two-part sermon. Because <laughs> I have something, God's got something else to say, and I'm not sure how it's going to work out, but I'm going to save it. Because I want to get to this opportunity uh, at the end here, and I know we're, we're a little bit behind, but we're going to do this and, and see how it goes. I gave you a piece of paper. If you didn't get one, I'll walk down and, and give it to you here in just a second. But these questions I designed to just get your mind sort of pumping to wonder, well, what is it that does make me exceptional? And here's a couple, here's what they are, the questions. First one, a stranger surprised me once by telling me I was blank. Because isn't that what happened to, to Ruth? A stranger surprised her <laughs> when he came along and said, hey, you know, you stay here, you be with my people, you glean this okay. She said, I'm a foreigner, and he saw straight through that facade. He saw exactly what made her exceptional. He was a stranger to her. He won't be for long. Teaser, spoiler alert. <laughs> but he was a stranger to her at that time. So what's the time that a stranger surprised you by telling you you were something? Second one, blank was the name of a friend or a neighbor who I admired for their work in the church. Even if you haven't been in church your whole life, I'm sure there's someone in your life that you've known to go to church that seemed to be an exception to the church rule. Someone who seemed exceptional in a way. Who was that person? Think about that person. Put their name down. And the third question gets to the heart of it. God has set me apart from others and made me exceptional in this way. And I want you to fill that in. And I promise you, God promises you, that if you, if you fill that in, that third question, <laughs> I think that's the first step to a new season of life, of service in his ministry for you. This is not something we're going to collect. This is for you to keep in your Bible or to put, take home, put on your mirror, throw it in the trash if you want. I don't know, but it's yours, okay? We don't want it. But we're going to reflect on these questions for a few minutes with this video, uh, with a familiar song that you know. And so I just invite you to have a, a few moments of quiet time to, to answer these.